ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're here, we're live, and we've got a great show for you today. If you want to participate, you can on the phone, on the web, or tweet us on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of interesting topics. And today in the ReachMD Forum, we'll be discussing that very public retraction of that very controversial research. Of course, I'm talking about the alleged MMR vaccine and autism link, first published in The Lancet, now retracted by The Lancet. It's got us talking about what is coming next. And what else is on our minds today? Well, Matt recently spoke with one of the foremost molecular biologists in the world. I did. The discoverer of DNA, the one and only Dr. James Watson. And we'll present that discussion about genetics and the future of cancer research. But we're going to kick off this show with some updates from the health technology sector. And our guest, Dr. Joe Kim, keeps a sharp lookout on all things technical through his medicine and technology blog. He'll be with us today. So sit back in that doctor's lounge sofa, grab a coffee, and put your feet up. It's going to be another great show on Second Opinion Live. All right. Let's get this party started. Time to talk tech, Michael. Our first guest, Dr. Joe Kim, is author of the Medicine and Technology blog, conveniently located at medicineandtechnology.com. And he joins us from always sunny Philadelphia to share some of the latest buzz in health IT. Joe, great to have you with us. Great. Thank you very much. I can talk tech, Apple IIc. How's that? (laughs) It's only going to get worse from there, Joe. (laughs) I remember one of those. (laughs) I still use one. So, Joe, tell us, you've got your eyes on the prize, as it were. You know what's going on in the world of health IT. What's out there that's getting your attention? Well, I think right now probably the latest buzz has been drawn to the Apple iPad. And uh, it's certainly generated a considerable amount of publicity. Lots of blog posts out there looking at this device that's not even actually out on the market yet. And I think that as healthcare professionals, um, we're all asking the question, how is this device going to actually fit in the healthcare world? Is this, uh, this going to be as revolutionary, for instance, as the iPod when that first came out and how it changed not only digital music but the availability of audio and video podcasts and how the iPod has now evolved into this um, touchscreen device with the iPod Touch. You know, will this iPad truly be um, some kind of a device that's going to revolutionize not only the consumer um, industry, but really the, the healthcare industry? And I think that's probably one, one of the main topics that's on, on a lot of people's minds right now. Hey, Joe, what, uh, just for us Apple II Gers out there listening, what is the iPad? Can you just give us a quick rundown? I think a lot of people would describe the iPad as a really big iPhone slash iPod Touch. But it's not a phone, right? It is not a phone. Oh. However, you can get it with a radio chip installed and have access to the Internet um, through various 3G, well, I shouldn't say various 3G networks. At this point, it's actually just through AT&T. So isn't it kind of like almost a, a way to do your email but not on your iPhone if you're traveling? So it's easier. Right, exactly. It's pretty much, uh, for instance, a lot of people out there, physicians and medical students, uh, other healthcare professionals, they may not have an iPhone, but they have an iPod Touch. And they may use it for their music, their video, their games. Maybe they even hand it off to their kids uh, when they need some kind of entertainment to sort of distract the kids. Uh, That's something that I actually uh, use every once in a while. Um, But the iPhone or iPod Touch, and some people actually call it the iTouch, but Uh, The iPhone and the iPod Touch has really become um, a landmark item in the world of healthcare. We see a lot of physicians and medical students using these devices, 
And now with the iPad, it's almost like you've taken the iPhone and you've sort of stretched it out and you've made it really big. It's still very, very thin. And it has a lot of the same capabilities, but now with a large screen that incorporates multi-touch, so you can touch it with two fingers and sort of use gestures and navigate through the device. And because it has a built-in web browser and you can access the Internet either through a Wi-Fi connection or through some kind of a 3G connection, uh, you can always stay connected. Well, will you be able to use it with your EMR systems? That's, I think, one of the key questions that's, that's going to be out there. Uh, given that a lot of the electronic health record solutions are now creating apps for the iPhone and, or they're creating small little web portals that you can access with any kind of mobile web browser, I think the big question that on a lot of people's minds will be, will the iPad be a device that a physician who's on call, who wants to go out for, say, a dinner meeting and doesn't want to carry a lug around his laptop or maybe he doesn't have a netbook, he or she, um, and will something like the iPad be a nice little device that still has enough screen space for you to navigate your electronic health record, perhaps if you're remotely uh, located from your hospital, uh, use it for a computerized physician order entry system, and I think that's a, that's a big question. I don't think that anyone really has um, what I would say a definite answer, given that the screen resolution and the screen size and even the capabilities, the hardware capabilities of this, of this device, um, you know, we don't really know for sure how it's going to compare compared to just a full-fledged uh, tablet PC of some kind or, or these netbooks that we're now seeing right. out there. Well, I see it as a way to drag on vacation and answer my email without doing it on my iPhone, which gets a little boring after the 100th letter. Email. And I see it as nothing because I'm a BlackBerry user, so I think I'm in trouble right now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'll tell you, a lot of BlackBerry users out there still have an iPod or an iPod Touch at home, or you know, they, they may use it recreationally. But I, I guess the big question right now is, you know, how is this iPad going to, uh, you know, what's the adoption rate going to be in, in the healthcare community? And um, and I think there's lots of different ideas, lots of opinions floating around. But until we actually get to purchase one, hold it in our hand, actually use it in the clinical setting. Uh, it's all speculation. Right. Well, thanks, Dr. Joe Kim, for updating us today. And thanks, Joe, for being with us. I hope you report back in the future. Great. Thanks for having me. And a reminder to check out his blog at www.medicineandtechnology.com. iPad, I want one. I'm pretty much sold, too. But enough free publicity for Apple. Our next guest has set the gold standard in pioneering research for over 50 years. Dr. James Watson joins the show from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories to speak about future directions in genetics and cancer research. I think it's a fantastic opportunity to get inside the mind of one of the great molecular biologists of our era. Uh, Matt recently spoke with Dr. Watson at length, and we're pleased to present that now. We are here with Dr. James Watson. Dr. Watson is the winner of the 1962 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, along with Dr. Francis Crick and Dr. Maurice Wilkins, for their discovery of the structure of DNA. He now serves as Chancellor Emeritus for Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. Dr. Watson, welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be on it. Dr. Watson, we're focusing on cancer today, but before we talk about current views, I'd love to know how your perspective on cancer has evolved since the early days of your career. What were your priorities back then compared to now? I think I've had a, a long interest in cancer, which started at the time I went to graduate school. I was 20 years old, and my father's younger brother had uh, was just diagnosed with malignant melanoma and mm. would die some months later. And I think it was the first time I'd seen cancer close up and, you know, the horrors of the disease. So 
That was before we knew the structure of uh, DNA. <laughs> we, you know, in retrospect, we knew so little. And in those days, the only way people were really curing cancer was, you know, either surgery or radiation. It seems so foreign to think of our understanding of cancer without understanding the structure of DNA. What was our basic understanding of cancer at this time? Do we know anything about the roles of uh, No, we damage? didn't. Of course, we didn't know how genes acted mm-hmm. or what a gene was. So, you know, my aim was just to understand the gene and how it functioned. And that consumed me in the 50s, I guess you could say. <laughs> in the 50s and in the 60s. And by 1968, uh, the opportunity arose to set up a laboratory at Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island in New York, and I thought this is the time to study tumor viruses. These were viruses which, when they infected cells, sometimes they may, instead of just multiplying, they made the cells cancerous. And uh, I had become fascinated by that topic when I learned about it in graduate school in Indiana. And when I went to Harvard, I taught a course on viruses. So, of course, I taught uh, tumor viruses. And I remember late in 1958 when I was teaching, of course, I suddenly had an idea. I think I know, you know, my thought was, I know why tumor viruses make cells cancerous, but there was no way to prove it. But the following year, in fact, it's now just 50 years ago, I gave a course on cancer to Harvard students, not at the medical school, but in Cambridge, because I thought cancer is something which should excite scientists as well as doctors. It sounds like a very organic direction development in your career. Did you have any means of predicting at the time since your discovery of DNA structure that you would be moving down this path for cancer research? No, but, you know, from early on, I wanted to be associated with curing it. Hmm. But at the time when I had my idea on tumor viruses, we didn't know about messenger RNA. We really didn't know the basic facts of how proteins were made. And so... After I gave my course, suddenly our lab had a big breakthrough and uh, that consumed us for, uh, you know, seven or eight years. And we had to establish how proteins were made. And uh, I had some incredibly good students at Harvard and they helped do it from, you could say, 1960 to uh, that decade. And so we were ready, I think, to begin to work with tumor viruses. But in those days, we had no way of isolating genes. We could isolate mutants, but we couldn't isolate genes. But then the big discovery of recombinant DNA in uh, 1973, which uh, led to the biotechnology industry, also led to us you know, being able to, with time, isolate cancer genes. And so... That process is still going on, but it has great face, I'd say, in the 70s and 80s. And still now, it's very exciting. It's definitely still guiding us. But what other pivotal discoveries or movements in cancer research would you say helped guide your work following your own discoveries? Well, when I was a student in Indiana, they told me in a lecture that cancer cells had something very distinctive about their biochemistry. They made lots of lactic acid even in the presence of oxygen. And this was first observed by the great German biochemist Otto Warburg, who I think was generally acknowledged as the best biochemist in the world, probably between the wars. And he said that's the essence of cancer, but we didn't know what a cell was. We didn't really 
you know, anything about it is control. And so my excitement now about cancer, I've always been excited, but now I'm sort of hyper, if not manic. It's something we understand the barber, observational lactic acid. Came out of work uh, at Harvard Medical School and the uh, University of Penn Medical School. Suddenly, we, you can see it, and that essentially when cancer cells are dividing cells, in order to divide, you've got to make new, you've got to double the contents of a cell. And so the lactic acid is a byproduct of uh, just using sugar at about 10 times the rate you do when a cell isn't dividing. So they consume a lot of glucose, a fairly exciting result now, which, you know, it no sense, but now I think we, you know, I had nothing to do with the discovery, but I'm excited by others, is that people who have diabetes, that is, who have too much sugar, when they take uh, anti-diabetic drugs, they have less cancer. <laughs> <laughs> that was, you know, a pretty striking result, and uh, which would sort of say people who aren't diabetic maybe should be taking the, the same drugs and they'd have less cancer. So the breakdown of sugar is at the heart of cancer. And the leading book on cancer, it just came out three years ago, had absolute no mention of this phenomenon, even though it had been discovered in 24, because people didn't know quite what it meant. Suddenly we know what it's meant. And so you can say the energy of cancer, or the metabolism of cancer, is not what you want to study. So you would be proposing an avenue of research to find new drugs that inhibit, for instance, enzymes crucial to that breakdown of glucose. Is that right? Yeah, there, there are a series of them, and it occurs in a slightly different way in dividing cells than other dividing cells. So uh, there are steps which, if you block, uh, would still let your liver function or your brain function. When I wrote an article for the Times, I had a title. They, they changed it. My title was Cure Cancer Today, Not Tomorrow which I was really trying to say, let's have a go at it during this coming decade. Let's not wait a decade. Just studying it and studying it and studying it. Let's cure it. You know, I think at last we know the essence of cancer. And knowing the face of your enemy is very helpful. You know where to shoot. Well, it's the devil that you know versus the devil you don't. Yes. What I find so interesting about your position on and alluding to biochemist Dr. Vorberg is that it indicates a shift of research priorities from your perspective on understanding cancer. I mean, you're asserting that we need to focus back on biochemistry of cancer as opposed to just the cancer genetics primarily. And I think that's really interesting coming from someone so central to this. Someone who was... You know, in 1972, when the war on cancer declared by President Nixon, I was appointed to the first committee. Mm-hmm. And in the process, money went to MIT to start a cancer center. I went out and gave a lecture. I said, you're doing something sensible. You brought cancer to brains, not to patients. <laughs> and oh, they wrote up an article, and, uh, you know, I got fired from the committee because I said this was going to be a long, hard task to find it out. I had no idea how hard it would be. You know, I thought maybe 20 to 30 years, you know, 30 to 40, and maybe on in the 50. But I think we can do it. There's enough. You know, the fact that people take cardiac glycosides. You wouldn't think that. You know, they have congestive heart failure. They take a pill. They get less cancer. (laughs) 
Now we know why. It's due to a transcription factor called HIF, and uh, the glycosides uh, destabilize this uh, transcription factor, and so the cancer cells are unstable. You know, my thought is, you know, maybe 10 years from now, you know, we're still in the iron lung phase of treating cancer. <laughs> you, know, you needed, you know, Jonas Falk had to come with his vaccine in Sabin. And before that, it was just a mess. And right now, you can be sure that most cancer researchers are just making cancer treatment more expensive, dreadfully expensive. Whereas, you know, my aim is a pill that costs you a dollar a day. <laughs> <laughs> you might reduce, you don't know you're taking the pill. So I think we have to change it. Right now, we spend vast sums of money developing drugs which extend your life by three months and cost you more money than the average person has. So what do you feel is the most important first step to be able to change that whole paradigm? Of well, we... I think actually, you know, I said it in the article, I think we need a general to actually lead us, not a general who passes out money, but actually who thinks he knows how to win. And not within a 30- or 40-year time frame, but in your opinion, within a 10-year time frame, you think it's possible? I think, you know, right now we should appoint a general, and I won't go into names. The Obama administration I know is considering good people, but, you know, I don't know how important they realize it is that they really appoint a general rather than someone who just passes out money. First offered the job to someone who turned it down, but that person was just a... A paper shuffler, mm-hmm. not someone who's, you know, born to win. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of qualities are we talking about in the type of leadership? I mean, we're, we're talking about an allocation of research. I think we research. have to be smart. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the government has been so dumbed down, we think anyone can run the government. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want to say anything, but cancer is an extremely difficult subject. You actually have to be bright to have convictions to know where you're going. Otherwise, you just think, oh, everything's equally important. Mm-hmm. And it's not. You know, you want to really win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not just keep the cancer establishment alive. You know, what we're sure is we'll keep the cancer establishment alive. We don't know whether we'll keep our people alive. <laughs> well put. But I think we really finally understand the enemy. An enormous breakthrough. Most people don't realize it, but I think I catch on fast. You know, <laughs> I, know <laughs> I know when you have a chance to win. You know, like back in 52, I sort of thought the structure of DNA is solvable. <laughs> and almost no one else. So I think people got to actually believe that maybe we can win, and let's do it. And you don't mind, obviously, if there's hot water in the interim, because ultimately it's how you get, it's just getting there, I take it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think it's going to require necessarily vast sums of money. We just have to focus on the right thing. So what are those right things? Is it pure cancer research? Is it clinically focused research? What are your thoughts? No, I think, uh, of course, it's going to be... We have to develop new drugs which, you know, handle sugar. That really is uh, the holy grail, you think? Is that the yep, direction? Yes, I do. I think it is. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but at least try. I know the Obama government is thinking in the right way. The question is whether they get that person. Do you think a but, metabolism expert would be the person, yeah, the way to go? Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. Not a gene expert. A metabolism expert. I think that's so interesting to hear coming from someone so central to genetics to talk about, if anything, going against your own mold and saying, really, we need the biochemists on board here. I've always, you know, <laughs> I mean, we had to do the genetics to sort of, you know, put together. The genetics was absolutely vital. But now, somebody, we're finding mutations that affect metabolism. Are you investigating uh, with your research teams in this at all? No, I, you know, Coastal Harbor is a gene place, and I, you know, uh, I don't have a lab, but I haven't had a lab for 40 years. So, you know, I just try and encourage people and write books, and sometimes I get excited. And I'm excited. The Times cut out my last sentence, which is, a mama shouldn't throw it easy to steal past. He cannot appoint someone who doesn't know how, where victory lies. You know, if you appoint the wrong person, oh, God, you know. The person will just try and keep friends. I don't want someone to keep friends. I want someone to cure cancer. But, you know, most administrators are afraid of being fired. I've never been afraid of being fired, and uh, they fired me when I was head of the Genome Project for actually saying the right thing. But I, I, it's just uh, newer victory lies. <laughs> so as far as where the victory lies, do you think that the major discovery is going to come from uh, smaller biotech companies or government-affiliate organizations? I mean, where do you think the real nexus of discovery is going to be? Drug companies are so slow to change what they're doing. Right now, you know, I would say <laughs> MIT, Cold Spring Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> no bias, of course, at all. <laughs> no bias. I'm just saying I don't think you have to create a science city, a new science city or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, you know, the technologies which we just didn't have 10 years ago, which now make us you know, able to move so much faster and cleaner. Well, it's clear that pharma and biotech are much less likely to take on these high-risk projects if there's not an immediate payoff in the short term. Well, um, it all depends who's running them. You know, I'm not saying a biotech company could do it. In fact, people who had these ideas have uh, started a biotech company. And I was with someone who had decided not to invest in it. I said, oh, maybe you made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> How about as far as uh, FDA regulations go? The FDA regulations, they're designed so the the people in clinical trials don't die. You know, FDA hasn't been run by people who understand cancer. Well, isn't one of its directors an oncologist who's been practicing for many years? I best say nothing. (laughs) Understood. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) But you've advocated, and you're not alone in this, that the testing of new combination drugs, which have proven ineffective alone, would be vastly more beneficial than our current strategy. Yeah, yes. We've got to go to combinations. It's unlikely that one drug is going to do it, but three or four together might. And three or four each of which had very small effects. So we've got to lots of freedom in the way FDA. And I don't know the new director of FDA, so I can't say anything. What other regulatory setbacks do you see as needing to be addressed here? I think it is just the speed at which you can try combinations. And worry about curing cancer, not about some person dying in a trial. You know, no one wants to preside over a trial in which someone unnecessarily dies. But it's not the big goal. You've got to take risks. And we want a riskless society. 
So who is moving down the direction that you think is most positive? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pessimism in cancer research today, and you've addressed that. But where, where is there a bright light at the end of the tunnel? You know, Lou Cantley's lab at Beth Israel Hospital connected to Harvard Medical School. That's one. And Thompson's lab at the University of Penn. They're, they're the ones that maybe think differently. And, you know, there's a meeting in Madrid called the Energy of Cancer. <laughs> They've caught out. <laughs> or, you know, it could have been called cancer metabolism. I don't, you know. And all these people are moving down that direction of metabolism with cancer, or are they... Well, some, some are. They're beginning, yes. I think metabolism has to get the same attention. The genes now do. Well, you know, it's been almost 50 years since you and Dr. Crick were awarded the Nobel Prize for discovery of the structure of DNA. Where do you project will be about 50 years from now regarding cancer research? I mean, do you think it's there for us? It's a 10-year process, or are you, are you a little pessimistic on that we'll actually get there with our current administration, et cetera? No, I've said, let's try and cure cancer this coming decade. You know, I don't think 50 years from now I'll be dead. <laughs> no point in me thinking 50 years from now. <laughs> you know, I'm 81. I want to, you know, maybe I, if I take enough cancer-preventing drugs, uh, I may be, you know, still functional a decade from now. Well, I think anything's possible. I mean... Could anyone have predicted that the discovery of DNA would lead to what it's led to now in the last 50 years? No, no, you can't. But most scientists have a time framework of five years. We're not 50-year people. 50-year people are science fiction people. <laughs> not to say that science fiction hasn't led to some of the most incredible discoveries in real life, but uh, I do agree well, with Well, I don't know. I've never read a science fiction book in my life. I can't, you know, it's not me. <laughs> now, that, you I know, will I say, does I surprise have, me. I have science. You know, that keeps me excited. Is there anything that you'd like to add for our audience that we haven't spoken about today? Any other messages no, you want to No, it's just that brains count. <laughs> well put. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Watson, for your All time. Right. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Okay. Bye. If you just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD Radio XM160. You've been listening to a discussion with Dr. James Watson from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories on future directions in cancer research. And if he's right and brains count... We're in trouble, Matt. That we are. On to the ReachMD Forum. Matt, a very interesting situation developed from the medical journal The Lancet, now retracting the infamous study that first suggested a relationship between the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and the development of autism in children. So let's get into it. I mean, there was... Uh... Obviously, when everybody says, I don't want to get a vaccine, this combination vaccine for my child, it's pretty much this paper that's often cited, uh, at least over the past decade. And that's the reason why important vaccinations are foregone. And if we talk about the effect, I mean, look at the UK. Vaccination rates dropped to 80% by 2003. That's only a few years after the paper was published. I mean, that's a huge drop-off in just a short amount of time. But when we talk about the retraction, that's coming after the UK's General Medical Council formally rebuked its lead author, Andrew Wakefield, for what they called ethical lapses. And that included performing overly invasive tests, such as MRIs and colonoscopies on the study children, totally unnecessarily. He was paying children attending his son's birthday party to draw their blood for his research and not disclosing ties to a lawyer who represented parents of autistic kids. And we shouldn't even forget the alleged patent filing for a monovalent measles vaccine nine months before the study was published. Now, he denies that, denies that his patent filed had anything to do with his research at the time. But, uh, I mean, look at that. I think this is a strange guy. He's defended himself in a public statement. But Lancet's editor used the term appalling. I mean, hmm. that's, th 
how British is that? Appalling to describe Wakefield's <laughs> behavior and said that it cast doubts on the original study's methods and findings, necessitating retraction. I've never heard an article retracted like that. Yeah. The editor, I think he also acknowledged that the paper's publication and the events after that reflected what he called a system failure. It was a failure by everyone, the media, the science, the government. I think that's really interesting, and you had some thoughts on that. I think the media really ran with this one. The media these days loves to take a sentence out of a paper, take an idea, build up and run with it because they want to sell magazines, newspapers, sell advertising. I think the media is just as guilty here as the editors of the magazine and the author of this study. They're all guilty. Everybody's failed on this one. Well, I'm glad that the editors came out and were very forthright about it. One quote over here that we're seeing is that the editor of The Lancet said that we used to think that we could publish speculative research which advanced interesting new ideas, which may be wrong, but which were important to provoke debate and discussion, and we don't think that now. Isn't that neat? They're basically saying we can't trust ourselves or the public. Yeah, it's all about money these days, isn't it? We do have to ask that question, though, don't we? Is the retraction 12 years later too little or too late? It sounds like it to me. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people who aren't getting their kids vaccines, and I don't know if they've heard this yet, and they're not going to believe it. We'll see. We will see. And that's a wrap for us here on Second Opinion Live. Our thanks to Drs. Joe Kim and James Watson on the show today. We've got to go update our tech department, clearly, because we're behind. We are definitely behind the times over here, Michael. And reminding you all to watch what you metabolize, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. You can also follow us on your iPhone. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMD XM160. And please don't forget about Haiti. They still need your help. They need medicines, tents, and doctors to go there. They are still suffering, even though we're not talking about it officially this week. Take care, everyone.